Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Thea Linarduzzi and with Stig Abel shockingly away this week, I am joined merrily, for my part at least, by the TLS Arts Editor, the Honourable Lady Dallas. Not Lady Dallas, sorry. Yeah, I don't no, know where no, that that's fine. <laughs> I, I, Lady Dallas is fine. Hello. But your name is in fact Lucy. It is. And that is yeah. how we shall continue. Well, if you'd like to give me my full title, I don't mind. <laughs> Uh, well, um, with Stig being away, uh, I must admit I completely forgot to check to see whether we had received any reviews, whether as hard-boiled crime, Shakespearean soliloquy or limerick, um, either positive or negative. So, Lucy, you'll have to oblige us with a limerick, which I have just forced you to prepare. I'd just like to say that this is madly unfair. I've been given about three minutes to come up with this. <laughs> not even that. No, not even. OK, you ready? With books and the moon and some flowers, we could listen to this stuff for hours. With fear and stig, our brains get so big, we feel at the peak of our powers. Oh, that was wonderful. It scans. That's oh, the only thing I can say for it. And rhymes. It's sadly not true, but very good. Thank it you very rhyme. much. No, 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 it does rhyme. I mean. Oh, I see. You mean the content. No, the yeah, content's no, the sentiment's lovely, well. though. Thank you very much. You're, you're, you're so welcome. Please don't ever make me do that again. Right. Coming up on this week's show, with Mother's Day just around the corner in the UK, Dale Solwack, the editor of a new collection of essays about writers and their mothers by, among others, Ian McEwan, Margaret Drabble and Martin Amis, will tell us what he was hoping to find by asking writers to probe this most complicated of relationships. And Judy Carver, the daughter of William Golding, he of Lord of the Flies and Pincher Martin, whose essay also appears in this week's TLS, will shed light on how Golding's difficult relationship with his mother made him the man and writer he became. Charlotte Shane, meanwhile, will tell us about Marjorie Hillis, the woman who, in the 1930s, taught American women how to live alone and like it. And finally, we'll be joined in the studio by our very own Catherine Morris, our biography, bibliography and travel editor, whose past specialisms have included parrots and variant spellings of the name Catherine. Following her recent trip to the Baltic States, she will be telling us what she has learnt about Latvian literature. Whatever else is unsure in this stinking dunghill of a world, a mother's love is not, wrote James Joyce in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, to which we might add J.D. Salinger's observation that 
mothers are all slightly insane. The fact of the mother, though, is, you know, to state the glaringly obvious, one of the few things all writers share, whether she is known and present, or adoptive, or distant, or dead. But is that where the commonality ends? That is one of the questions that lies behind a new book, Writers and Their Mothers, a collection of 22 essays, some biographical, others autobiographical, by writers including Rita Dove, Ian McEwan and Judy Carver, the daughter of William Golding. As Dale Solwack explains in an introduction, the volume began in his attempt to find out whether there was truth in Georges Simenon's claim that novelists were united in their hatred of their mothers, or in Gore Vidal's assertion that hatred of one parent or the other can make an Ivan the Terrible or a Hemingway. The protective love, however, of two devoted parents can absolutely destroy an artist. What happens to writers who are wounded by their mothers, he wanted to know, and what are the links between a happy or sad childhood and good writing? We're joined by Dale on the line from California and by Judy Carver in Bristol. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 Um, Dale... Could you start by shedding some light on the putting together of this collection? How did it come about and what was your criteria? Well, it goes back to 2013. As so often the case, it was a um, chance uh, reading of a passage in a book by Alexander McCall Smith. The title of the book was What W.H. Auden Can Do For You. <clears throat> and while I was reading the book, I came upon the following words. There may be no book on the mothers of poets or artists in general, but it might one day be written and would, I think, be an enlightening read. And so I marked that passage as just something inside of me triggered, and that's something I was interested in, and I mulled over it, and about a year later decided to commit to that and see what I could do. From that point on, the process is rather nebulous. I think you'd say it's a blend, blend of instinct and coincidence and just sheer good luck. I began by contacting writers with whom I was personally acquainted, uh, some of whom had contributed to anthologies I'd done in prior years for Palgrave. And then I extended my inquiry to other novelists and poets and literary critics, and slowly it came together. Uh, my criteria, first and foremost, was to reach out to prominent novelists, poets, and literary critics that I had read, both in America and in Great Britain, and that I knew had had something to say in the past about their relationships to their mothers or had written to some degree about, in a biographical sense, about mothers. And then I, I went from there. And so what kind of mothers do we meet in this collection? What sorts of relationships do we see? <clears throat> well, it's a full spectrum, as you might expect. Uh, on the one hand, many of the mothers are understanding, uh, spiritual, tender, protective self-assured. Uh, they very clearly created environments favorable to the development of their children's gifts. But then at the opposite end of the parenting spectrum, uh, we also see tortured mothers who ignored, uh, interfered with, smothered, or abandoned their children. And that provoked, provoked me into quite an uh, interesting inquiry into just what effects these mothers at both ends of the spectrum uh, had upon their literary offspring. There's a, there's a sense in which, and I'm sure, you know, quite wrongly, but when we know a person or we think we know a person through their writing, we think we can guess at the kind of upbringing that they might have had. Did, did any of these essays really surprise you when they came in? Well, first and foremost, I have to say Philip Pulin's um, essay on the relationship between Philip Larkin and his mother, Eva. You know, for ever since Philip's passing, 
those letters, which number in the thousands, had been kept uh, in an archive at the University of Hull, Hull University. But now they're released, and Philip is working with them, and we've discovered a whole new dynamic to Philip's uh, relationship to his mother that obviously impinged upon his poetry. Most interesting for me, especially, was Philip's uh, discovery that about the time that Philip says the poetry gave him up, that is, that was in the late 1970s when he stopped writing, that's the same time his mother passed. And I I think it's more than just sheer speculation. There's some connection there between the passing of his mother and the giving up of poetry for him. You do, you do see that in a number of the essays. It's kind of a sort of like a double reveal of mother and offspring. You know, the idea that yeah. in order to really understand the writer's work, you must go back to the mother and their relationship. I suppose we see that as well in um, Margaret Drabble's excellent essay on, on Samuel Beckett's Mother May. Yes, very much so. Indeed, yes. And in fact, that's a theme that runs through the entire book on one level or another, and that is the extraordinary intimacy that our contributors uh, have revealed and shared about the relationship between a writer and the mother, and um, what what the results of that uh, were from the perspective of their own writing, their own publications. Dale, can I ask you, I'm interested in the in the range of differences that you found, as you say, it went right across the spectrum, that some... Some people had very difficult relationships with their mothers and some had wonderful nurturing backgrounds. But but yes. none of that sort of prevented the writing, as it were. Or was it No, felt that- that's true. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, on the one hand, you could say that their writing was a celebration of or an honoring of their relationship with their mother. And in fact, in some cases, I sense that the mother was the source of inspiration, or we might even call her the muse. On the other, it was uh, sheer revenge mm. or therapy or just a coping. I think, for example, of Robert Lowell and the relationship to his mother, Charlotte, uh, such a fearful relationship, such a controlling relationship. And, boy, we read his poetry now through a different lens now that we know of his relationship with his mother. In fact, he was so fearful of her words that when he knew she was on her uh, deathbed, he didn't go into the hospital to see her for fear of what she might say before she died. Gosh. Judy, does that is that something that resonates with you, um, knowing your father and his his William Golding and his re- relationship with his mother? In she wasn't exactly amused to him, or certainly not at first. No, I think it's a much more complicated situation. Though perhaps I think that because I I saw quite a lot of it in detail. She was a most mysterious woman. She was a very quiet woman, and I wouldn't say she was shy, but she was certainly reserved. And I think his sense of her interior life probably gave him permission to have one as well. I think that's a very big factor. And he says that they're similar in that regard. But he sort of grew up feeling torn, as I understand it. From your piece, you get the sense that he was torn between his sort of science teacher father and the world that he represented, a kind of a rational world that could be measured, and then this world that his mother represented for him, which was a much wilder place. Yes, and I think that was quite an exciting sort of collision for him. I think to grow up feeling safe because of the rationality of the world your father promotes is a very good way to be allowed to think really bad thoughts and I think that's probably what he did Uh, his mother I mean her ghost stories were legendary they were terrifying and they weren't just sort of 
spookily terrifying. They were terrifying because of their awareness of evil. And I think that's something that you can only confront as a child if you have a place of safety as well. But when you refer to um, that, he, he, he talks about feminine witchcraft, which he sees as very much a feminine thing. And he, he felt that, that women had capacities that men didn't have that were kind of mysterious and unplumbed. And um, do you think that comes from the same source? Yes, I think it does. And I think it's a much more common phenomenon than one might perhaps predict. I don't think he necessarily felt that the witchcraft was was black. Mm. I think he um, attributes to his mother great powers and notes that she often used them to help him very much. And she was, I would say, she was a kindly woman on the whole. You know, she's, she was subject to rages, but... Uh, I don't think I've ever met anyone who wasn't. <laughs> yes, that's good. Point. When one of the powers that you that she did not have in in your father's eyes was was the power of beauty. Why he seemed very very hung up on that. Why 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 was it such a problem for him? Do you know, I do not know. It's coloured my life as well, and I wish I knew the answer to that. There was some situation going on in his mind and probably in hers it may have come from her she was i mean she was a, he describes her as a handsome girl i mean he didn't know her as a girl obviously and i think that's probably fair she wasn't as beautiful as her younger sister who was an absolute knockout mm. and maybe it all came from that and maybe i mean he was really thrilled with my mother's looks more or less to his dying day I see. And I, I mean, I, I sort of wondered whether it, it seems to jar her lack of beauty, jarred with his need to idealise women and, and motherhood more broadly. And I wonder, Dale, if, if that's something that goes through the rest of the volume, a need on the part of the, of the writer to, to idealise or, or just compensate perhaps for their mother's shortcomings. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Very much, very much so. I could pick any number of essays in which that emerges as a theme. And to be perfectly frank, I think that's operating in me as well. I didn't mention, but I should mention that one of the um, impetus behind this book is my own relationship with my mother, who's now 96, uh, living in her own home in San Diego. And in fact, as each essay came in, uh, she received a copy and read it and gave me her comments. Um, I, I'm very aware of the influence of my mother on me internally and, and all my projects all throughout my years of scholarship. She, in fact, is my ideal reader. That I have to start there. And I do know that in my own work, frankly, I'm seeking to evoke the pride of my parents. That's wonderful. So you are, you're very much embarking on the same project, as it were, as, as all of the writers. That's right. Yes, exactly so. And she has read every one of my projects over the years and saved me numerous times from stylistic errors or embarrassments. Um, in, in this case, as she read each essay, she gave a mother's reaction to the essay. And they, many of them moved her deeply because of their sensitivity and honesty and some even to tears. Uh, she knew the writers, she knew their work, she grew up with a literary background and so I valued her feedback. And Judy, do you think, what do you think William Golding, your father, would have made of of that line about his mother being, uh, Dale's mother being the ideal reader. Do you think, how do you think William would have felt about his mother reading his work? Well, for him, his first and always ideal reader was my mother. I think he would have hoped that my, mother, my grandmother 
would have liked his work, but it wasn't something that he looked for immediately, I think. He dedicated Lord of the Flies to his parents, but I think that was out of great gratitude, which was quite appropriate. They were very good parents to him, very understanding. I think he would have enjoyed his mother's reaction, but perhaps it wasn't the first port of call for him. Dale, when you started out on this volume, you had a number of questions. I'm wondering if both of you managed to find the answers to the questions that you were posing respectively. So, Dale, if you if you could tell me first. Well, inevitably, one question leads to ten. So as soon as I discovered answers to these questions, then I had more questions. Um, to be fair to all the contributors, it's a broad spectrum of questions that they're addressing. I can't give a definitive answer to each one, each question. I have to look at each uh, particular author. But I have a much fuller sense, I can put it this way, a much fuller sense of the profound and oftentimes perplexing, complicated relationship between a writer and a mother and a, a deeper appreciation of just what an important role the mother plays in the writer's life, whether it's um, at the positive end of the spectrum or otherwise. And Judy, would you, what was it exactly that you were hoping to discover? Well, I think what I found was the answer to both my questions. My first question was, can we attribute as much influence to my grandmother as we attribute to my grandfather, who's always been thought of as a great uh, stimulus to my father's writing. And I think the answer I came up with was emphatically yes, yes. She explains a lot of the the darkness, the unfathomable um, questioning, and perhaps the contentment with no answer. And the second question was, did she have a happy life? And that question, I'm rather glad I didn't answer because I suspect on the whole she probably didn't. Well, it's a beautiful piece that you've, that you've written, so I'm sure she would have been proud of that. Judy Carver and Dale Solwack, thank you both very much for joining us. What a great project. I just can't believe that no one has has done it before. It it runs very deep, doesn't it? All of it. And how wonderful that that the editor is essentially going through more or less the same process. Yeah, it reminded me a bit as a project of uh, New Ways to Kill Your Mother, which was um, that book by um, Colm Tobin a couple of years ago, or maybe actually, I think probably about four years ago and it was similar in that it was looking at writers through their families Mm. uh, and trying to understand what it was about their particular family dynamic that made them into the person the writer that they were but I think that the specific focus on the mother is just such a rich theme Yes, and also it sounds like, despite what you're saying about Dale's introduction, you know, Georges Simenon says everybody hates their mothers and <laughs> Gore Vidal says, oh, if you have two, two parents looking after you, it's that will destroy you. And it turns out that there's a different answer for every relationship. Exactly. And we all know how you feel about Gore Vidal. I feel, I feel <laughs> just critically objective about Gore Vidal. That's how I feel. And that is how we shall leave it. <laughs> This week, Charlotte Shane introduces us to Marjorie Hillis, who wrote a popular self-help guide published in 1936 called Live Alone and Like It, a guide for the extra woman. A Beyoncé for her times, shouting out to the single ladies? Well, not really. But Hillis did celebrate the lives of single women, which had not really been done before. Charlotte Shane reviews a new biography of Hillis and wonders whether the limitations of the self-help book have been fully explored. 
Charlotte, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think Marjorie Hillis is not really a household name um, anymore for us. Um, Could you trace for us the trajectory of her life and career, please? Uh, Sure. So she was an um, American woman who was born to a minister and his wife. Um, Her mother had some pretty conservative ideas about uh, divorce and women, but As Marjorie got older, she took a slightly more progressive track and somewhat unconventionally for most ministers' daughters, I would imagine, she ended up uh, working at Vogue and she was still unmarried uh, as for much of her adulthood, which was somewhat unusual or unexpected, at least for someone of her standing. And... um, if I'm remembering correctly, she was uh, she was born in like Bronxville or something like that, and that's where her family was based. But then, uh, once she was an adult, she moved to Manhattan, and that kind of seems to have been the great thrill of her life. Um, I mean, not to speculate too much about where her eventual husband stood in her uh, lifelong excitements. It really seems that uh, Manhattan was her 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 true love, and uh, the city just. Uh, stimulated her so much and and she felt so um, proximate to all of these opportunities uh, that that she then eventually wrote about in several of her books, not just The Extra Woman, her first self-help book, but eventually the later books, including like Tourist Guide to New York and um, some other tomes like that. So her her guide was well, certainly live alone and like it. It was sort of about how to seize the opportunities, how to be a, a sort of a, a bachelorette, I suppose. She she seemed to have been very judicious in uh, who she, the book was intended to be for, which was really any woman who was living alone, which was not necessarily a never married woman like herself, but could be a widowed woman or a divorced woman. She has this great line where she says something about women between husbands, which I really liked. (laughs) If if you find yourself between husbands, here's what to do. Uh, So it was a relatively sort of like cosmopolitan focused outlook that it was easier to be the single woman living alone and liking it if you lived in a city which allowed for anonymity and access to a whole variety of of things you wouldn't have if you lived in a small town where everyone um, knew you and you couldn't show your face without everyone thinking of you and your entire family history. Do you think in writing the book, was she making a stance? Was it a kind of societal or political thing? Or do you think she was just kind of cashing in on a gap in the market that nobody else had really written about? Or 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 do you think it just came from the fact that she was having a great time and wanted to encourage other people to? I did not have the impression of her as some sort of uh, <laughs> marketing Svengali who's saying, no. "Wow, I could really I could really clean up if Though I." Though she did. <laughs> I mean, the figures were astro- astronomical, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it was such an outrageous success. And one thing that I don't believe I. I really put much uh, attention on in, in the eventual um, piece that's coming out about it is that she partnered with these department stores to market the book and also market various items alongside the book. Ah, so you can have the oh, book, you know, so live alone and like it against um, like a negligee or an attractive piece of furniture. So there was <laughs> kind of, kind of how you, product placement uh, and product tie-in. Drink, right, drink yes. a Coke and read um, your book. and Very savvy. <laughs> 
Yes, very, uh, just really clever and um, a great a great deal for the store and for, for her. It was a very mutually beneficial arrangement. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I kind of imagine it like probably most writers where they get an idea in their head and they think, yeah, this would be fun and interesting. And then in retrospect, they might be able to say like, well, I knew, I knew that the women, the single women were underserved, which I don't know that, I don't think Hillis ever said that, but um but that at the time it was just this kind of, uh, you know, like nose to the ground, following your interests where it leads you. Um, because there's, there is not a lot of indication that, um, Marjorie Hillis thought of herself as, um, a political figure or someone, especially, um, like, like part of some vanguard. Uh, it seems more like she was kind of, um, I don't want to. I don't want it to seem derogatory, but I just kind of picture her with like a martini in her hand, like like let's all have fun, darling. You know, Ooh, that like, sounds why, good. Why worry about it so much? You know, in, in the middle of this depression, like, um, like she just kind of wanted things to be pleasant and upbeat. Yeah. Which is not to say they weren't also useful um, to her readers in, in more practical ways, but that um, I, I don't know. It's hard. I guess it's hard for me to imagine her grappling with some of the more challenging realities of the time we should say though i mean so there was a sort of a a turning point in the story in that she did then get married uh i think she was nearly 50 or or just just past 50 and that was i mean how did that go down she kind of like condensed her writing career into um i think about like four years she published so many books and um before she was married but i think she was married in like 1939 or something so and she published her first book in 1936 so not even four years like three years she's kind of churning them out and she's writing a column and she's giving these talks she's had this tremendous career in a, a very short span of time which Vogue I think helped prepare her for a lot and then she gets married and she kind of falls off the map and the media is unsurprisingly kind of gleeful about her marriage because I think it it seems to them an opportunity to imply that she's somehow hypocritical or to kind of say, oh, even the even the women who think they're wild and untamable are going to settle down eventually. So there's there is actually ultimately no such thing as a single woman because every woman will become partnered if she just uh, lives for long enough, I guess. <laughs> so um, did they feel it was a kind of betrayal of, of what they thought her position was? So the media seemed to have been confrontational with her about it and Joanna Scutz the author of the book says that Marjorie was a relatively good sport about it and she seems to eventually have kind of gotten up um, given up pleading her case that she wasn't necessarily advocating for women to be unpartnered she just wanted to speak to women who were and to, um, to help them have more fun while they were kind of thing right you know she wasn't she didn't really have an agenda in terms of keeping women single or convincing them to be single. But while she was married, she sort of completely withdrew from public life. So she ended her column and she stopped giving lectures and she tried to float this biography or autobiography that, um, that the early readers said was just seemed really self-satisfied. And and I, I don't know that they use the word smug, but I get the impression that it's kind of smug, um, where it seemed a little bit like if it had been published, that it would have been a little antithetical to what even she was saying about her earlier messages. And that this autobiography draft seemed to maybe say that 
now I'm married and, and things are really great. Like now I'm really living the ultimate fantastic woman's life. Right. It but would have changed her legacy. A good thing maybe that it wasn't published um, for any variety of reasons. Yeah. But I think that the uh, author of The Extra Woman, this book about Marjorie Hillis, did a beautiful job writing it, but it does seem that there's sort of a dearth of material a- after a certain point. Like there, there isn't a lot of information about her courtship with this man she eventually married. And um, she's a little opaque, actually, which is maybe hard to accept given the kind of like women's magazine chattiness in her books, which has that sense of being candid and um, like a little conspiratorial. Yeah. So for her to withdraw so completely when she get married and when she got married, I mean, I think that was a little confounding. Towards the end of your piece, you you do get a bit impatient with the um, self-help genre as a whole um, and their audience. Um, you've got a, a brilliant title of a book that, that you feel like you've been reading. Can you let us, <laughs> let us know what Not that is? Not only let us know what it is, but also please write <laughs> it. Yes, please do write it. <laughs> right, how to, how to be a strident killjoy and like it. Wonderf- I mean, the, wonderful I think the liking it is book. almost redundant. If you teach the first part, the rest follows. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Charlotte, Shane, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sometimes, and only sometimes, TLS editors are allowed out even sometimes out of the country. On these occasions, we rub the ink from our fingertips, brush the pencil sharpenings from our trousers and put on something smart. Or, in Catherine Morris's case, two puffer jackets at the same time because, as she found on a recent trip to Vilnius, it was minus 17 degrees Celsius. Before Lithuania, though, there was a trip to Riga, the capital of Latvia, part of a tour in the run-up to a Baltic focus at next month's London Book Fair. Catherine has written in this week's paper about, among other things, how a country that has endured centuries of frequently changing occupations 
from the Livonian Crusades of the 12th century to the most recent annexation, which of course only ended with the dissolution of the USSR, can even begin to realise such a thing as its own national literature. Catherine joins us in the studio now. Hello. Hello. In the context of what one of the people you met in Riga described as 700 years of slavery, I suppose we shouldn't really be that surprised, should we, that the first published work composed in Latvian by a Latvian came in 1806. No, and a, a literary critic called Anna Baklana, who gave a talk during the trip, she she told us a bit about the, the history of this territory. There were the Livonian Crusades, uh, which began in the 12th century and resulted in German rule. Uh, then in northern Latvia, there was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, then Swedish rule, then the Russian Empire, and after a short period of independence, uh, there was the, the Soviet Union. So the first texts in Latvian were composed in the 16th century as a result of the Reformation when German priests started to translate the Bible and other religious texts into the language of the people. And German was the language of culture for many, many years. So the first novel in Latvian came only in 1879. That was, it was called The Times of the Land Surveyors and it was written by two brothers, both of them teachers, but one hugely influential figure was Rhinus. Um, he is Latvia's most famous writer. He was born in 1865 and he had a, a grand vision of Latvian independence. Uh, he led a progressive movement called the New Current. And he was passionate not only about writing in Latvian, but also about enriching the Latvian language, which he did with enormous success. And he, he was part of a, a literary power couple, sort of, from, yes. from the sounds of things. Yes, so his, his wife, um, she was known as uh, Aspasia, uh, after Aspasia of classical Athens. She, uh, she was one of the, the first well-known Latvian feminists, and she was also a prolific writer. She wrote lots of plays, and she was very interested in human rights and the freedom of the individual. Um, so yes, they were exactly that, a power couple. Was it dangerous for them being... And she was interested in freedom freedom of the individual at a time when that was not necessarily being promoted very heavily. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Rhinus spent time in jail. He, he yeah. was deported. And they both went into exile and they ended up in, in Switzerland and they stayed there for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And so they they came back only after that first independence. In, they came back in 1920, so two, two years after that first independence. And, and then obviously not long after that there was a there was a whole other kind of suppression of, of whatever Latvian literature was to become um, with the Soviet annexation and mm. and then all of everything that, that that entailed. Yeah, so during the first Latvian independence period there was actually a kind of flourishing of publishing. Um, in 1936 about 1,600 titles were published and in 1940 there were almost 500 publishing houses but during the years of the Soviet occupation publishing was controlled and financed by the government Uh, so there were six publishing houses and rigorous censorship uh, which was particularly strict in the years before Stalin's death in 1953 so literature had to conform uh, to what was called uh, Soviet realism so novels had to depict typical characters of Soviet society and these had to uh, have a a clear moral message and there could be no indecency and so on and in fact it went further than that uh, in that avant-garde and postmodern works were forbidden during the 
Soviet period. They don't sound very good, those novels, do they? They don't sound much fun, do they? (laughs) I don't mean the only interesting thing is immorality Mm. and indecency, but they don't sound like a bundle of laughs. No, not a bundle of laughs, definitely not. Tell us about Latvia's National Library. It sounds striking, I mean, both visually and symbolically. Yes, it was designed by Gunnar Birkitz, who is a a renowned modernist architect. He he died last year, um, but he was born in Latvia uh, and left Latvia during the Second World War. Um, He received the commission in in the late 80s and it was completed in 2014, so it was long, long in the making. And a member of staff told us that it was, in a sense, a monument to himself and he paid attention to every detail. So the tiles on the ground floor... They make up a pattern you'll see in traditional Latvian tablecloths and that kind of thing. But the building as a whole, it's a gigantic, shining structure, and in shape it resembles a mountain. And in fact, it evokes for local people a well-known tale in which three brothers scale a glass mountain to to reach a sleeping princess. And it's the marginalised brother who makes it to the top. Uh, he's He's the underdog. And he has come to represent a whole nation dominated by outside forces for too long. So the library is symbolic of Latvian independence. And can you tell us about the um, the People's Bookshelf, which sounds like a wonderful thing? Yes, people are invited to donate uh, a, a book to this bookshelf. It, there's a sort of tower of books in the atrium. They they, they bill it as, as, as high as a five-storey house. Mm. And they don't want you to sort of get rid of books you don't want anymore. They want you to donate a book that has a real significance for you and they want you to write in it what that significance is and mm. what play, part it's played in your life. And they've got 5,000 books so far and they're aiming for 15,000. Um, but one of the surprises was that one of the most popular books is Three Men in a Boat. Oh, yes, in that Jerome translation. Jerome. Yes. <laughs> of course, and yeah. we're pressed for 700 years. Well, yes, so well, need a bit of, uh... Hypochondriacs are universal <laughs> types, so yeah, I'm sure it makes sense. Um, I mean, but when when you're describing the way that the um, the monument, the people's shelf rather, came together, um, I think you, I can't remember the figure, but twice as many thousands of people turned up as were expected. To me, that suggests that this is very much a country making up for lost time. Yes, yeah, enormous enthusiasm. So they had to, people had to register to take part in 15,000 registered and 30,000 turned up according to the police and this mm. was in minus 15 degrees, a uh, windy day. Um, so yeah, I, and there, there is a film in the library showing people passing books hand to hand from the old library to the new library when, when the new one was opened. I think it, there is, is that sense and there is also the sense that maybe this is a sort of new era for, for Latvian literature. Um, Anda told me that there's a new effort to, um, to depict the Latvian people in a, in a more heroic light after all these decades. Um, and there's a new film, for example, called The, the Pagan King, uh, which, which um, depicts them in a, in a heroic, heroic light. Does the challenge sort of remain then to not sort of split things between victim and and hero in in that sense? Yes, um, and I mentioned that the, that there is currently a lot of discussion about what children learn about at school, and she mentioned that when she studied um, when she was learning about Latvian literature in the in the nineteen nineties, it was all traditional tales in which um, 
nobody wins and good doesn't prevail was her phrase. So it's all sort of... She, <laughs> okay. she talked about one where there's a good-hearted boy from a poor family who, who gets so hungry that he steals another boy's food and in trying to escape punishment, he freezes to death. Uh, oh. And so there was quite a, few, quite a lot of that about. <laughs> so she says that that's evidence of Latvians viewing themselves as, as victims. But as I say, she, she's noticed a concerted effort to depict Latvia in a new way. I... I, I was struck by something I heard in Vilnius in Lithuania last month. Um, I interviewed a Lithuanian writer who told me that the ways people were forced to use language during Soviet times to evade censorship has resulted in a very fine, precise, imaginative way of writing, which can now be applied in an entirely new context. Wonderful. Fascinating. And you're, you're, you're going to be writing about um, your your trip to Vilnius for us as well, aren't yes. you? Okay, well, yeah. we'll have to have you back on the show again. <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you um, very much. That is it for this week, though. Uh, many thanks to Judy Carver, Dale Solwak, Charlotte Shane, Catherine Morris, of course, and my wing woman, Lucy Dallas. Do pick up or download a copy of the paper this week or visit our website. You could even subscribe. As well as the pieces we've discussed here, James Campbell reports on the FBI's file on James Baldwin, J. Michael Lennon roots around in Norman Mailer's library, Catherine Fletcher traces the history of the heart from the ancient Egyptians to Candy Staten, and Tom Shippey looks at where magic meets sorcery meets treason and much more. Next week, I'll be back as Will Stig. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.